Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Hello, ocean lovers. Did you know we have podcast merchandise now? If you are looking for a way to support the podcast and look awesome doing it, head over to marinebio.life shop. For our first design, I've partnered with Deanna from Coelacanth Studios and episode 21 of the podcast to create an amazing eagle ray. 10% of proceeds will benefit ray research. Check out the tanks, t-shirts, and stickers we have available over at marinebio.life shop. They make great gifts for the ocean lover in your life marinebio.life slash shop. This episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. For less than the cost of a dive tank refill or a cup of coffee, you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. There's also some fun bonuses for patrons, so be sure to check those out at patreon.com backslash marinebiolife. That's patreon.com backslash marine bio life. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. What do you call a fish with no eyes? Fishually impaired. My guest today is marine biologist, tech guru, and all-around ocean lover, Josh Peterson. Josh also hosts his own podcast called This Ocean Life, where he interviews people with incredible ocean stories from freedivers to artists and everything in between. A little bit of a twist on today's episode, Josh shares his story of how he got started in marine biology and how he helped create some of the public outreach and federally used databases in the California area by combining some pretty intense field work with his web design skills. He also shares his story of why he decided to pursue a different career path and ultimately what helps him to keep connected to the ocean. Please enjoy. Welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I am stoked to have you on. Uh, Kara, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here chatting with you. Wonderful. So you are a California boy. And is this what inspired you to pursue a career and a life in the ocean just growing up near the coast yeah you got it fine like so many other people that you chat with and probably like yourself just being immersed in it from just a little two-year-old you know jumping on my boogie board floating around flopping around in the water to just you know being enthralled with the water itself and then all the animals living within it you know from an early age absolutely so what actually inspired you to want to study the ocean or the fisheries within it, you have a degree from University of California, Davis in fisheries biology, which I thought actually was interesting because Davis isn't really near the ocean. It's not. Yeah. It's smack dab in the middle of the state, pretty much. Uh, it has a marine biology component uh, at Bodega Marine Lab, which is like north of San Francisco on the coast. So it's a small component, um, which I unfortunately wasn't able to get out to, to, to do like the marine biology field courses I did on my like stream and, you know, aquatic lake stuff for my, you know, my hands-on, you know, during that time. I was just, again, as a, just a kid, honestly, one of my earliest memories is being like in preschool. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's already like, you know, a very family or, sorry, ocean-oriented family. So we're <laughs> always at the beach and stuff. But I just remember being in the playground 
and be in the jungle gym and imagine the jungle gym was like my marine biology station, so to speak. I don't know what, what that was supposed to be, but then like all the kids running around were like fish or whales or dolphins. So even from like an early age, I was just like, I laid awake thinking about it at night and then like the Jacques Cousteau, uh, you know, program on as like ABC television, Sunday nights, you know, super old school, grainy, like the original stuff. Like I was just... I couldn't get enough of that stuff. So I always wanted to do it. You know, it was never a question. Um, and yeah, and so just was able to get into a good school. I was really fortunate for that. And then, um, yeah, so it was never really a question of what I wanted to do. But, and this is why I think what you're doing so valuable. I had no idea how to do it <laughs> to become a marine <laughs> biologist at all. <laughs> There's many different ways. So what made you decide fisheries biology out of, you know, you mentioned Cousteau. I know you've had it, you have an interest in coral reefs and um, what inspired the actual degree in fisheries biology? Um, you know, of all the f animals that swim around uh, and fly around or anything based around the ocean, you know, I have an affinity for so many, but I've always been a total fish geek, you know, fishing. <laughs> I mean, I just love the tackle. I love the fish and just got inspired by the program there, you know, with some, some great, there's a really well-known fish physiologist and fish ecologist. And so I had the opportunity to study with kind of both sides of the spectrum. You know, I was like, well, I'm always going to be just splashing around. I don't really know why I need to understand the physiology. But once I started diving into the physiology of fish, it's just so fascinating. I mean, like many animals, we do just like, even down to like, why, how, how these tunas have these, you know, heaters in their brains that keep their eyes warm so they can shift between warm water and cold to feed like crazy cool stuff, you know? So, um, mm -hmm. it was always just fish for me. And there's a program there. And a lot of times, you know, when we get into, um, a school, you know, you kind of take what you get, so to speak. Um, I wasn't really willing to go to like Southern California where there's more like legitimate, you know, on the water, full on marine biology programs. I was kind of staying, staying a little bit closer to home. And I had a bunch of friends in Tahoe, Lake Tahoe, and I was snowboarding a bunch. And that was like an hour and a half away. So, you know, other distractions, you know, kind of diverted me to that <laughs> school, you know, so it was like fish yeah. in general. Um, but I was already scuba diving. I'd started scuba diving as a teen, uh, tons of free diving, you know, growing up surfing and boating and just, you know, kind of a, almost a daily life in the ocean. Um, so, yeah, but the fish thing, I still, I have fish tattoos. I talk, you know, I can just sit and talk any, I don't care what kind of fish I I'll talk about it. I'll learn, you know, so it's one of those things I have a real weird obsession. Like I'm sure, you know, we all kind of do with certain animals. <laughs> <laughs> so do you have a particular species of fish that like continuously you gravitate towards? Like one of my favorite questions to ask is what your, what is your favorite sea creature and why? And I've stopped it used to be my favorite. I should rephrase that. <laughs> I've stopped asking because people started asking me that question. And I was like, I really don't know. It depends on the day. Yeah. So do you have a, a species or two of fish that you kind of like gravitate towards more or that like kind of catch your eye? You're like, I really, really like that fish. Yeah, it's a rad, it's a fun question. And I, I so I, I'll answer it in two different ways. There's the fish that I have direct firsthand experience with either taking photos of, catching, spearing, or being around, right? Those are the ones I can claim to know. And there's a, where I, we are in Northern California, there's these fish called cabazon. There's these big kind of, you know, bulldog looking guys and gals. And they're just so beautiful and so cool. And they taste so killer. Like, I love those fish. So I, I know those fish. You know, I have a tattoo of one. I can claim that. But then there's fish that like, I've barely caught a glimpse of like bluefin tuna. I've seen them from the boat mm -hmm. and I was just absolutely amazed and struck by them. And so 
you know, it's like there's these fish, these animals that almost have this like mystique to us that because you haven't had close interaction with them, like a whale shark's another one. Like I don't, I've talked to people on the podcast who've they've been dying with whale sharks forever. And it's like me seeing a, a seagull, <laughs> you know, it's like commonplace, right. you know, but still for me, there's like, I've never seen one. And I just lay awake at night still thinking about like the time when I get to do it. And hopefully I will knock on wood, you know? Um, so right. those big pelagics, the big things that like are just so amazing the way they move around the world and their ranges are so massive. They can change, they can go through different types of water. Uh, and they can still outwit enough of our technology of like <laughs> hardcore fishing to come back the next year. I mean, it's just incredible, you know, so. It is incredible. The bluefin tuna are an enigmatic creature for sure. There's just something about them. Oh yeah, they really are. Like, uh, <laughs> you know, and I had a spear fishing trip with them like two years ago. And like, I had no, like I had no business even being out there. Like these fish were not 40 pounds. Like we thought it was the gear for a 40 pounder. These are like 200 pounders. And so seeing them just breeze <laughs> by the boat and then just destroying a pot of bait and just this like fountain of water in the middle of the ocean, you know, you're, it's just this a massive amount of life. You know, it's like glassy ocean water one minute. And it's just like this massive eruption at the next and it's gone you know there's just something this is the way they act you can kind of get just kind of wrapped around uh just how they behave and there's so many neat components of the animals we kind of hold this fascination for absolutely absolutely so what was what was some of your classes or coursework like at uc davis you know we, we talked about it it's kind of centrally inland but you still got to go splash around in the creeks and the different rivers and stuff. So what, what was like one of your more favorite field components of going, attending the university there? Uh, I really liked the stream stuff. I mean, while I knew I'd end up in back in the ocean growing up in Santa Cruz on the coast, you know, I knew I'd end back up, but I don't, you know, but even as a kid going, you know, to like the Sierras and going to different areas where there were creeks and rivers, I developed a fascination with just like you know, rivers and stuff, you know, freshwater. And so while I was there, a lot of my coursework focused on, you know, freshwater streams, local, some like kind of, you know, high Sierra stuff as well. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of, it was like stream surveys. I, I loved having my head under the water, you know? Um, so I was like <laughs> always the guy who I didn't care how cold it was. I'll throw on a raggedy wetsuit and go snorkel through that pool and count how many fish there are and let you know, or whatever it was. So I was very hands-on. I love being dirty. I love being, you know, tired because you hiked in, you know, six miles to go, you know, electroshock this pool so you can see what's there and take a, you know, take like a little survey, stuff like that. So I really like that aspect of it, you know, um, and knowing the back of my mind that I was hoping that what I was learning would translate into the ocean one day, but it was just kind of neat distraction having, after having grown up on, in the ocean so much being in, you know, sort of inland, Absolutely. um, you know, seeing lakes and rivers and everything. Um, so yeah, a lot of freshwater stuff, um, uh, yeah. And then actually it was, it's interesting too. I really got interested in, um, the, the, in, the insects, you know, cause it's like you, once you kind of, mm. you have your, your area of focus, you know, me is all fish and fish and fish and oh, amphibians are cool too. Cause they swim. So you do your herpetology and then it's <laughs> the bugs also. And, and then you kind of get fascinated with those guys because the fish you're eating them and they're hatching and the fish do this accordingly. They structure themselves around the hatches of the bugs. And so like, you really start to see, the dynamics of this little pond that could be as big as your house, 
but there's so much going on in there that until you really start to understand the different players in the game, uh, it's just a fascinating tale, you know, and the same thing is in the ocean too. It's just, just such a massive scale. Like when you could go look at a pond and see the frogs, it's going to get eaten by the bass and then this hatch is going to happen, et cetera. You know, it's, you can kind of see it all happening in one spot. It's kind of one of the neat things about the freshwater stuff. That is, it is a cool part of it. It's a, its own little biome in a tiny little spot and you can really see it happening. And then when you think about it on a larger scale, like the ocean and like, you really just understand it's all yep. connected and it's really cool. You were you worked for NOAA, which is many, many people's dream job. And you did public outreach and you were also a research diver. What did that entail? What was your job kind of looking like? I'm sure that your day-to-day was wildly different, but overall, what did you get to do in that position? Yeah, uh, it was probably a pretty rare, rare little position I had. It was like, so imagine halftime, like NOAA dive master, um, you know, basically scuba survey guy uh, and halftime web designer. And mm. when I finished at Davis, and again, like many of the folks who are listening and you can, can relate, it's like, okay, I got a degree now. Oh, cool. I could be a marine biologist. Where are the jobs? You know, let me start sending my resume out. Well, that's not how it works. Right. So I go to Santa Cruz, um, you know, young, poor, and that's when the internet, the dot-com boom was just going stratospheric, you know, like 99, 2000 and Santa Cruz is about 45 minutes away from all of that craziness. And I'm watching kid friends who never went to college making like 10 times as much money as I am. And they don't even, you know, I mean, it's, it's incredible. So I thought, look, I'm going to go back to school. Um, I'm not ready yet, but I don't want to go back to school. And like the folks I know getting PhDs who are like, you know, they're struggling. They're broke. It's expensive to live here. So let me learn this web design thing. So it was interesting. I could develop the skill, make pretty good cash on the side while I go back and get a PhD, get a master's, figure that next step out. So I bluffed my way into a job in a tech company startup. <laughs> it said I knew how to build websites. I never had, but they didn't matter. Like if you had a pulse back then, it's crazy. If you had a, if you had a heartbeat and you knew how to turn on a computer and like send an email, they would hire you right on the spot to do something. I mean, it was, it was crazy. So (laughs) it wasn't like my dream passion by any means, but it was interesting. And I was like, you know, you're young in your young twenties, you're making pretty good cash and you know, it's kind of fun. And anyway, so one thing turned to another and two and a half years rolled by and I learned how to build websites. I learned how to do all kinds of different database stuff. I learned a lot, you know, it was really cool. And I go like, I'm done with this. I got to, I got to get out of here. And so I found this job with Noah, as you mentioned, it was split between the Monterey Bay Aquarium and Noah. And it was, the title was outreach specialist. And basically it was the, the Monterey Bay Aquarium was working with Noah to develop a website that it was kind of like the clearinghouse of ocean monitoring um, activities in sort of central California, because where we're at, we have a lot of, you know, higher education institutions. We have a lot of state institutions. We have private institutions. The Monterey Bay is a hotbed, just like much like where you are out there and like, you know, like Massachusetts, et cetera. And so there's a lot going on. And so I was hired because I knew how to build websites and I knew the ocean a little bit, you know? And so over time um, I started building this big database and started working with all the different principal investigators and all the different institutions, met tons of people. It's really cool. While, you know, my, my ulterior motive was to jockey myself into back into the ocean, you know? And so, Mm -hmm. um, 
got, you know, did the whole Noah dive master program, all the different training stuff leading up, um, while working with, um, um, University of California, Santa Cruz, UCSC, learned all the kelp forest monitoring stuff. And so ultimately got in this position where I was like dry in my cozy little cute office half the time. The other time I was out, you know, freezing, um, getting trapped in the kelp, you know, doing subtitle surveys, <laughs> doing intertitle surveys, a lot of photography, uh, anything and everything and running dive ops, et cetera. So it was a very, very interesting and fun position I had there for about five, six years. That's awesome. So I want to back up for a second. Could you explain what getting NOAA Dive Master certified looked like? Was that because you were already in this position and so you were able to go through these different qualifications? Or is that something you're able to do like outside of that job and then helped helped you qualify for the position? You know, it was all done after the fact. Yeah. So I I had like my basic open water, you know, cert, but that mm-hmm. wasn't even like the field component of that position was something that I kind of carved out, you know, cause I was part of like the research group of this program. And so, you know, my, my peers were, you know, they're all hardcore divers and just really great scientists. And my boss was a research coordinator, a diver. And so it was pretty easy for me to say, Hey, you know what? I really would love to start diving and here's why it would make sense and this and that. So over time they kind of said, yeah, go for it, you know? And, And uh, so I did the, you know, the AAUS, all that reciprocity stuff. And so, but it is interesting because, you know, when you, I've seen kind of the three major diving branches, if that's even the right way to say it. So you have your NAWA, you have your PAD, you have your stuff you pay to go do, right? You have the the AAUS, which is like, you know, the the college sort of supported sort of framework for diving to be sure you're safe. You have the same protocols. And that's like, you know, kind of the state's level. And you have NOAA, which is at the, you know, there's, that's the federal level, I guess above that would be like the Navy and stuff. And so it's interesting because each of those three, you know, it's like kind of from easy to hard and then the dive, the NOAA thing, it's like, <laughs> it was kind of a pain to be honest, because it, they, it's so <laughs> clamped down. And as a dive master, I was so freaked out <laughs> that something would happen on my watch you know, yes. um, and it's funny what did happen after three years of being a dive master was I got a DCS hit and I was the dive master. So it wasn't even me responding to somebody else's problems, my own. <laughs> so, so for listeners that are not dive certified yet, DCS is decompression sickness. How did you, how did, how did that happen? That's oh, a weird one, you know, and you always hear that too, you know, like, well, you're never quite sure when you get a bubble, you know, it's that nitrogen bubble in your blood and, you know, some people mm-hmm. get them and then they disappear. Some people get them and it's really bad. And, you know, I've been diving and was super safe and, um, you know, a lot of field work, I'm sure you still have it today and folks listening can commiserate, you know, sometimes it's like, Hey, we have a, a week of work ahead of us and there's mm-hmm. weather windows there's a number of sites and we, we were doing is we were motoring along kind of central California coast, surveying these kelp beds. We did it every year just to kind of, you know, we would survey everything from the kelp coverage to, you know, the, the small fish, the inverts, fish swimming on the top, the bottom benthic, the whole deal. And so you kind of create this picture, which is really cool to get to know these sites, um, but then to quantify change, if any, over time, really fun. But it's like, hey, we have this boat, you know, you know, there's eight of us. We're just going to sleep on the boat. We have a week, you know, funding short. So you got to get this stuff done. So you're running fast. You're doing, you know, two, three dives a day for five days. And so I remember um, it was like mid, mid week. And I was, 
I was diving a bunch. So I, we had another dive master come on board who would kind of be the top side, you know, um, just handling everything if something happened while I was diving. And so it was nothing crazy. It was just one of those weird dives. You know, sometimes you have, it was one of my favorite spots called Point Lobos. It's just beautiful. It's always so mellow. And it's just, I was like, oh, this is going to be such a great dive. But it turned out to be one of those really weird dives that from the start, it was like my buddy got wrapped in the kelp and I had to help him. That was distracting. Not a big deal. Go to the bottom and, you know, and I, I lost my clip and I had to go back and find it. It was just like this really weird dive. So you're like, can we just finish this and just be done now and go get some lunch kind of thing, you know? Nothing happened. Mm-hmm. We did the safety stop. We only dove to 60, you know, feet, super shallow. Mm-hmm. And, but I just was like, yeah, kind of anxious. Just like the dive was weird. And we're like, just let's get this done and have lunch. So I got the service, got on the Zodiac and, you know, sit down, take off my tank and, you know, you can stretch your back a little bit. And I've been like, you know, beating my, my body up my whole life with, I mean, everything from co- football and college to racing dirt bikes. I mean, I've, I've hurt myself. So I know what like weirdness feels like in your body. And I was sitting there and all of a sudden both my toe and both my feet started getting numb, which, you oh know, okay, gosh. well, it could just be, so I, you know, you shift, maybe it's your wetsuit pinching or something, who knows, you know? And then, and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden I felt that, I felt that come up both legs at the same time, up my knees, you know, <laughs> into my thighs. And I was like, man, I've never felt something like that. I mean, it was just weird, you know, and that's what they say is like, you feel this tingling, you lose some sensation. And, and one of the, my guy I was diving with who's super legendary. He, I mean, he's got like a couple thousand dives. I go to Randolph. I think I might have, I can't feel my legs right now. I mean, I can move them, but, and he goes, okay. I mean, that's why, why the dive master thing is great is if anybody has a chance to pursue it, whether you want to be a dive master and be responsible for others what you learn about like protocols and how to respond to situations. Like it's, it's so great whether you're just with your family, like snorkeling or something. I mean, it prepares you to, to handle stuff anyway. So we activated the whole thing, you know, it was like this full on, you know, we had to call the Noah dive center. I went on O2 and went on O2 and had some water and like, you know, about 45 minutes later, while we're motoring back to the Harbor. So that of course I had to be picked up by the ambulance. It, it went away. And it just gradually, my legs sensation came back, you know, but they didn't, didn't matter. I had to go to the, fortunately Monterey where we were has a dive, um, basically a dive, um, like an ER doctor who's a legit dive guy. And so they have a chamber. Mm-hmm. He's like, well, we're not gonna put you in the chamber, stay in O2. And one of the classic stories of, you know, I'm in this, I guess it's the ER, um, and I'm healthy and fine. I'm sitting there like reading a book and I have O2 on and like the nurse shift changes. And they always say, be sure when the new nurse comes in, she doesn't take o 2 And what happened to all the nurse like, why do you need O2? You don't need O2. I go, no, I need oxygen because it's a dive accident. She looked at me like I was crazy. You know, she had never <laughs> been part of that. And as they say, they're like, no, if you go in O2, don't let anybody take it from you. You know, and she didn't know. She's like, well, so anyway, it was just this funny thing. But in the end, I, nobody knows, you know, it was, it went away and I was fine. I, you know, dove the next week. Um, I think it was about the next week and it might've been, it might not have been, you just don't know. <laughs> That's so crazy. And it's not something, so for listeners that are not familiar with de- decompression sickness, it's also called the bends. And like Josh was saying earlier, it's, uh, you get little nitrogen bubbles and if it can't get out of your bloodstream, it can go up to your brain and, and it can cause some serious damage and even death. So 
taking it seriously is really important and getting proper medical attention is really important. And one of the ways to do that is to go on to oxygen. Um, many dive boat, all dive charters should have oxygen tanks on board. And if you're diving for work or recreationally, even it's always good, good idea to just have them. Mm -hmm. Um, though they're not, they're not cheap. So not all recreational divers have them, but they are good to have around if you are diving, um, in any sort of depth that DCS could become a serious issue. I mean, in any sort of depth, you're in 60 feet. Like that's two atmospheres. Yeah. That's, you know, open water. That's, that's your first level diving certification is to 60 feet usually. Yeah. So it's really not too terribly deep and stuff can happen. So you just never know. Yeah, that's a crazy sense. story. <laughs> <laughs> it's my claim to fame of all my friends who like, you know, I'm the one who got the, the hit or supposedly, you know, it's, I still get ribbed and they all took a bunch of pictures. That I was being wheeled, wheeled away by the firemen and stuff. It's this big, you know, anyway, it's funny. <laughs> it still haunts me. Good friends there. <laughs> Don't worry, Betty. I got your back. I got the photos too. Oh yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> that's awesome. So you're doing all this diving research. What what were you really cataloging and looking for while you were diving? And what how did that translate over to your more technical side of your job? Mm, yeah, yeah. And this is one of the fun things about diving and just science in general that I love is a the gear. You know, so so the gear and the protocols, right? that kind of combination is really cool. So we we'd go down, so we'd roll up to a kelp bed, okay? And we would kind of anchor, imagine the deep deepest edge of the kelp bed that we would dive is um, was 60, 65 feet. Then there'd be mm -hmm. another zone inside, which is about 45 feet. And then another zone inside, which would be like 30 to 15-ish, right? So we would kind of slice these kelp beds into thirds. You'd have teams in each third. Each third would have a team of the benthic team. That's the team who was basically like groveling on the bottom, looking in cracks, you know, getting your, your regulator ripped out of your mouth because the kelp's moving around. Um, and somebody right above that guy who's looking at anything that's swimming, you know, kind of midwater-ish. Um, and you'd, you'd plow through that. And then it'd be the invert people. And they would be just basically hunkered down on the bottom counting stuff. And so we would pull a tape. Uh, a, meter, a meter tape, about 50 meters. And we would do three transects and you would basically pull the tape and then, you know, we'd swim back together and meet and then we'd do our diving. And so again, to the gear part, you know, we had the, you know, the clipboards with the waterproof paper with the data sheets and, you know, my role, let's say on this dive is I'm the benthic guy. So I'm looking, you know, basically about arm's length, on either side of the meter tape. So I'm like kind of swimming or almost crawling over the meter tape and about whatever's on, on the substrate or just barely off of it. And then you, Kara, if you're my partner, you maybe you're the, the midwater person. You're like, you know, I don't know, three, four, maybe less meters above me, um, a little ahead of me because my bubbles will attract fish, you know, and kind of artificially <laughs> pulling fish. So I, you're always kind mm -hmm. of, um, ahead of me a little bit, but then you're looking at things that are basically like above me again, same distance. It's like a big box. Imagine swimming through a box with the ceiling and a floor and sides. And it's just, you're swimming through and you're recording, you know, oh, what you see. And there's sometimes easy, you know, it's like, oh, there's one of those or sometimes, oh, wow, there's, you know, uh, 350, you know, you kind of start getting this like way to, to quantify big schools of things. And then sizing as well, you know, so 
it's just like anything. It's like over time and we had practices where we'd have, you know, practice, you know, cut out fish and underwater because things look way bigger than they really are. And so you have to size them appropriately. So ultimately we're just sizing and counting, you know, um, and you're doing that on those, the three, those three different, the, 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 the deep, the, sh- the mid, mid range and the shallow, you know, and, mm-hmm. and so that's what we do. We do it again and again and again. And some, some places, you know, we, the invert team needed somebody. So you jump in and learn the inverts too, which I really love that as well. Cause again, it's that, that whole picture idea back to the pond example where I was a fish guy, but I love the insects because they interact and same thing with the invertebrates, you know, everything from the corals to the algaes to, you know, the crabs, et cetera. So, um, it was tough. I mean, diving central California, it's not easy. You know, water's 50, 48 degrees. Um, you know, you you know how it goes. You're diving all day long and then you're back on the boat, you're filling tanks, it's rocking, it's bumping. Um, you know, and sometimes we were in places, you know, about a mile from elephant seal colonies. Um, and you know, when you're in the, those are the ones we'd Rochambeau to see who want, who, cause everybody wanted the shallow. So when you're near these like elephant seal rookeries, or even there's just known rocks where there's just a ton of like sea lions, you know, there's, there's sharks swimming around there, you know, all the time. <laughs> and so we'd Rochambeau or like, I'd be like, no, I'll do the dishes for the next four nights in the boat. If you let me, like, we'd always kind of like, you know, parlay to see who got the shallow. Cause you want the shallows, right? Cause when you do the deeps, sometimes you're like, well, we're in 70 feet of water. Like we've done, you got to go up. And when then you go up and this, you know, this is not nice blue water. This is green. It's if, if it's 15 foot visibility, we're feeling really lucky. And then when you're doing that safety stop at 15 feet for three minutes, I mean, that's like when you're just, oh man, you just don't know what's someone next to you, you know? So <laughs> no, nobody <laughs> wanted to do the deeps around those areas. <laughs> that's pretty funny. Yeah. It's a uh, shadows in the water and you don't know what's there. Did you ever see any like super intimidating sharks that swam by you during your safety stop? No, you know, it's interesting. I'm like the only person I think I know ever who's never even seen a white shark. Not even from the surface. I have friends who have been bumped by them. I've been told there was one behind me when I was paddling. I've been told that, didn't you see that thing breach out of the water like 20 feet away? I was like, no, I didn't. So no, I never saw anything, you know? (laughs) Um, And they're around. I mean, we just had a guy, we just lost a guy two months ago from an attack. I mean, everybody I know has seen one. Uh, Yeah. So no, I I never have. (laughs) One day, one day I'm sure. I would rather see one diving than paddling. We'll say that. I agree with you. Yeah, because you know if they're letting you see them, or they're letting you see yeah see them when you're diving that they're not in full on hunt mode. You know, so right, <laughs> right. but still it'd be unnerving. <laughs> it would be very unnerving, mostly because it's a huge animal, and it's got a lot of teeth. It does. So Indeed. even a curiosity bump could not could be really bad. Oh yeah, no, for sure, and that's one thing that like. I mean, kind of tying back a little bit with like the, I mean, I call it the disaster preparedness aspect of being in the ocean, which I take a lot more serious now. And I'm pretty, I think I'm fortunate that, you know, I'm, I'm in my forties and spent, I've done some not smart things in the ocean with some of my friends, which that's okay. And have made it back. But now like here in, Ta- in Santa Cruz, there's a resident, like, you know, juvenile white shark population. They've been here for like four years. They're like the six to eight footers, but then they get to 10 real quick. And we've had a bunch of bumps lately. And 
I just like had this conversation with some other guys who dive a lot and you have a, you know, a stringer of bloody fish on your belt and you're by yourself or something. And so what I do now is I have a tourniquet and, um, just because it's like the guys who bleed out, the fish, shark doesn't just bite them into pieces. It's, it's a bite and then they disappear most of the time. And then people bleed out, you know, and you try to tie that tie your whatever bleeding femur or something with a, a surfboard leash or whatever. And so anyway, now a bunch of us stock tourniquets. It was really cool, like field, like medic tourniquet things. And I'll, I'll carry one on my paddleboard when I do these kind of really weird far out in the water paddles or keep it in my car now. I don't know if I'll ever, hope I ever use it. I hope if I do need it, I'll actually be able to use it, but <laughs> I feel yeah, better. Hopefully it's, it. it's mostly like a shark deterring totem. Like because you have it, you'll That's never right. need it. Exactly. It's That's like right. why you bring foul weather gear on the boat, even though it looks like it's going to be a beautiful yes. day. Just That's to right. keep all the bad weather away. Yeah, you got it. So that's what I'm hoping that's what it is. <laughs> there you go. Awesome. So tell me about, I mean, it's pretty incredible that you got to marry, you know, you did the fisheries biology and then you, you realized that there's more to what you wanted to do than just fishery stuff. So you kind of migrated over into the tech side and then you got to marry the two things and you created, or was it the first Simon database? What is it? Sanctuary Integrated Monitoring Network. So was this all part of your work in Mon Monterey Bay? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And it's something that I, I just am so thankful to have had the opportunity to, to be a part of. And it's one thing that's really interesting as, you know, for folks listening and anybody who's navigating a path towards marine biology or is already in it and looking to see what else it's like, there's an aspect that is really, it was what I kind of fell into, which is sharing information. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I was ultimately hired to, Hey, we're going to build this website. We're with the general public, it's not a science website. It's not built for other scientists to see what that, you know, researchers doing. It's built for like, you know, my mom who loves to do beach walks and is just curious, Hey, what's up with the dead seagulls who can go and read something at, at a level where they get it, you know? And so that's what I ended up doing was, was really looking at, Hey, how do I, how do we translate this, you know, scientific, cause you'll lose, you'll lose you'll lose audience if you go too scientific some of the time. You know, some people just want to know it's a seagull, it's the basics. Other people might want like the genus and species. Other people might want even more natural history information. So it was this really interesting challenge to get, you know, talk to, you know, a, a researcher who, let's say, studies sea otters. Furry, fun, everybody loves them. But they talk in scientific language. And like, mm -hmm. again, I'll just use my mom who's informed, but not a scientist and kind of glazes over if you, you know, talk about Southern resident populations and ranges and things like that. It's just more about, hey, are they, is a the population good? Is it bad? What are the issues? You know, so it was really fun and challenging to be able to spin scientific information in a way that, you know, your neighbor down the street could read and go, ah, I get it. Cool. You know, and be informed by. And so what we ended up doing was, again, I feel fortunate that I learned all this tech stuff being over in Silicon Valley because we had built this website like as a legit like <laughs> software freaking enterprise tool. Like it had a full on database. We were able to update it. We can you know basically give a web form so like the researchers could update their own thing. They could upload images. They can we had built out a species database. So it's not just a picture that is of a sea lion, that you can actually tag like, oh, it's a, it's a sea lion 
And then if you did a search on sea lions, you would find their picture. So we really try to make this thing like a legitimate, like 21st century type of database system, you know, mm -hmm. um, and which we did. And it was really cool. So we built it, built it, built it. And it was really a really neat, great success story within the Monterey Bay. And then we started taking that and expanding it further, you know, and what I ended up kind of doing over time was seeing like I really wanted to continue my education. I had some opportunities. So now I kind of knew a lot of people in the area and Southern California. And, you know, I was starting to talk to some researchers or some, you know, about, you know, uh, get pursuing a PhD. But what I kind of realized was I felt like my impact with my ability to put this information in front of the public who we ultimately need to know about and care about because they're the ones who are going to vote or they're the ones who are going to show up for the beach cleaning or they're the ones who are going to do something ultimately at mass. I felt that my value was stronger there versus, you know, um, being that fish guy. I always wanted to be a fish researcher or something that I was wanted to be. Um, Anyway, so who knows if that's true or not, but um, that really ultimately was what I ended up doing was just then sort of building that model out, that sort of monitoring website database out. And we were then transplanting it in different areas of the U.S. as well. So we had one um, up and down the coast of California. Uh, we started working with the Florida Keys a little bit on doing one um, and the different national break sanctuaries, which are you know kind of spread around the country. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. It's really incredible. I'm, I'm, I played on the sanctuarysimon.org website a little bit and it's really fun. You don't, like, if you're just curious, you don't even have to type in something that you're specifically looking for. Like if you see, see something on the beach, you have an idea what it is, you can type it in, but you could even just do a drop down and like click whales, sea lions and, and sea otters and just scroll down and see all the different animals and there's photos and uh, the scientific name and a little bit about them and habitats. And it's just, it's a really cool uh, website and a lot of information on there and it's really valuable it kind of brings home the outreach part of it, right like science science communication because you're right when <laughs> most of the public starts hearing about more of the nitty-gritty science stuff and like hearing all the nuance their eyes glaze over and it's not that much fun so it's a really important and way to be able to reach out to people and to get them involved in where they live or where they're visiting if they're not yeah. native to to the area so that's awesome yeah, thank you. No, it is a kind of like a hallmark thing that I'm really proud of and you know stoked on. And I still talk to all those guys. I still dive with them. I'm, you know, so it's it's kind of neat and tied to you know. I shifted out of that just because you know. I mean, you have a young family. I had you know suddenly three kids, and I needed to. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, the government wage wasn't really cutting it, unfortunately. This really super expensive place to live. So I bail. I left and went full tech, which I still do. Um, but it's what's fun is that you know. I'm able to still be a science geek because I still talk to those guys. I still talk to all the mm -hmm. guys I used to dive with. One of my really good buddies who I spearfish with, we do all kinds of stuff. We surf. I mean, he runs the boat program at, at you know, a long marine lab, University of California, Santa Cruz. He's a legit diver. And so I still get to sit and talk about, and one of my buddies works for National Marine Fisheries Service. He's like the salmon guy on the West Coast. So it's really fun to be, you know, dangerously informed about science um, and still <laughs> have those conversations, you know, like when just us chatting about this stuff, you know, and when you and I talked, you know, on the podcast, it's just, it's just neat, you know? So even if, you know, we're not able to make a full-blown career out of being a marine biology, marine biologist, um, 
it is one of those neat things where I still feel like uh, uh, like an armchair quarterback, like an armchair scientist, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Um, So it's still neat. You still keep it with you, you know? Yeah. I think I had actually found a a website called like the beach chair scientists. And I was like, that's perfect. Cool. And I think it's really fun for people to realize, like, even if you're not in marine biology or if you were in it and just decided like for whatever reasons, family or health or whatever, you needed to pursue something else that like you can still be involved in the science part of it or the ocean conservation part of it because the ocean does need help and it needs as many voices as possible. And if you are in this other industry and can bring your insight and wisdom from the ocean tales into that, that's super valuable as well. So I really think that's awesome that you're able to kind of keep keep uh, straddling a line between the two worlds. And so how I met you, met virtually, is through <laughs> your This Ocean Life podcast, which is super fun and just shares stories from all over the world, people diving, um, fishing, surfing, being marine biologists, saving sharks. I saw you had Maddie Stewart on. She's awesome. So could you tell me a little bit about why you started the podcast and kind of what, where it's led you? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, initially, this is like two, almost exactly two years ago, um, I was just kind of looking for some side project to do, you know, just kind of just wanted to do a little something extra seeing people in my town in Santa Cruz that I grew up like, you know, legends surfing guys are now, you know, hitting 70, 80 years old and some of them were passing away. And I'm like, man, the stories, those guys didn't grow up with social media. They didn't grow up with video cameras. They didn't grow up with any of that stuff. And so, yeah, they have a lot of amazing stories that are passed, you know, kind of hand to mouth, but once those guys are gone, if those stories aren't captured in digital form, like that's, you know, that's, it was just kind of, when I realized that I go, gosh, it'd be really fun to capture those kind of stories, you know, and I love chatting, as you can probably tell, I can just talk all day and I love talking <laughs> stories about the ocean. It's easy for me and I love hearing them too, you know? So I set out to just do that. Like, look, let me just capture some stories. There's such a rich set of people in my town. I mean, from big waves to biologists, you name it. Uh, and really quickly, it was interesting because as I started doing it, I saw that people were craving this kind of stuff. You know, like even me, like I commute three days a week and as my drive's 45 minutes, what do I listen to? I find, you know, I can't listen to music every day. You can't, you know, and so I, I'm always searching for stuff and there's something you can find to listen to, whether you're jogging, whether you're in a commute whether you're cooking dinner, like that just kind of fulfills you for 20 minutes or 45 minutes. Um, people really, and the ocean's one of those things. And there just wasn't, um, didn't really, wasn't that need wasn't really met in the podcast kind of space, I'd say. And so over time, what it turned into be was um, capturing stories that might not be told or shared digitally otherwise, but then just sense feeling people were inspired by them, you know, and I get an email, one of my favorite ones that really kind of propelled me was I was, I had a podcast and an episode we're talking about paddle boarding. Cause I'm like a pro and paddle guy. I've been at doing it for years. I've done a bunch of Hawaii races, this and that. And, and one of my buddies did this pretty amazing 55 mile unassisted like paddle. He shouldn't have done cause you know, but he did. And it was pretty gnarly. And so anyway, this guy reaches out to me over Instagram because, Hey, you know, my name's Jonathan. I'm from Tasmania. He just heard about you guys doing this stuff. He's like, I think it's awesome. He's like, hey, by the way, you know, 
I don't even have anybody to paddle with, so I can totally relate to being out there. There's sharks and the fog and not knowing anybody, da, da, da. And I'm like, oh, dude, you got to come on the podcast. So I had him on the podcast, right? And again, he thought he was the only prone paddleboarder in Tasmania because he's never, he's never even seen other boards. He's never heard of anybody, anything. It was a great episode. And then a week later, he reaches out to me, goes, you will never guess what happened. Somebody heard my podcast episode with you and they thought they were the only paddleboard prone paddleboarder <laughs> in Tasmania. So now there's two of them. But it was just so cool that like people they just want to hear what uh, we're, we all want to know what each other's up to, you know, in the ocean, you know, and there's mm -hmm. so much value in that, whether you're working with sea turtles or whether you're trying to tow into a hundred foot wave, like it's, we all have that connection. That's the one kind of mm -hmm. neat thing that comes out of this that I try not to get too like woo woo with in terms of like <laughs> art, but I more and more, I'm more willing to. I don't really kind of emphasize that, that connection we all have, you know, whether you want to be a scientist or you want to just go sailing across the world, you know, there's that connection we all have. And that's what I kind of, that's kind of the, kind of the juice in it for me is I get lost, you know, just hearing you talk about, you know, so you're setting up tours in the mangroves um, near your house and, you know, to show people what you know about the natural history and you know, working with turtles, like, right. That's awesome. You know, and I've had people who can hold their breath for eight minutes and dive to 300 feet. Like, wow, that's awesome too. Everything's equally awesome, you know? And so, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, it's just been fun, you know, and two years later, almost to the day, kind of, um, you know, 130 something episodes, um, and kind of growing. Yeah. It's been really, really pretty fun. It, it really is true. And I have so many listeners reach out to me saying they just have this connection. They have this un undescribable pull towards the ocean. And this is why they want to be a marine biologist. And like you, or like me, you know, they've just stayed up at night, like dreaming about it, or it was kind of the only option. That's just what they want to do. And uh, I, it, it is fascinating to see how that thread kind of weaves through so many different people and pulls us all together. And you're right, whether you're a scientist, a conservationist, if you're a big wave surfer, or like to go free diving on the weekends, like, Absolutely right. It's just that same pull towards that big blue ocean or green with 15 foot visibility, depending on where you are. <laughs> yeah, I know. And it is. And I think it's more, I feel not, I shouldn't say mainstream, but it's more, I think it, we are all acknowledging that connection that as individuals we have with the ocean. I think in the past mm -hmm. it was just like, oh, I'm just macho and I'm going to go surf big waves or oh, I'm going to go spearfish or I know I really want to be a scientist. It was never like, no, actually, I want to do those things because I can't stand not being in the ocean, <laughs> you know, right. like, and that's the reality. Like none of us can right. stand not being in the ocean. Like it's, that's right. straight up, you know, um, and it's interesting unifier. It really is. And whether you're from whatever country or nationality or anything, you know, and some of the stories I love the most and so why I love what you're doing is, you know, some of us grew up in an ocean family and it was just there. I mean, it was from day one and man, how lucky are we? Then there's people and especially like third world countries who don't even know how to swim, are scared mm -hmm. of the ocean. They might be like in Mozambique and it's absolutely gorgeous, but they don't even want to touch it until somebody comes and holds their hand and says, here's how you do this. And then that world opens up to them. You know, those, I love those stories because um, I, I take my... I, not so much anymore, but I have a good chunk of my life taking 
you know, my fortune to be in the ocean for granted, you know, so the, when I hear these stories of others, you know, being brought to it or being, having to be exposed to it and finding that calling. Cause you know, once it hits you, you it's a done deal, you know, and then like what you're doing, helping to guide that person who wants to take it to the next level. It's like, I want to freaking be a marine biologist or I want to do something on this. You're providing them some guidance. I think that's so, so very cool. Oh, well, thank you. It's been a lot of fun as well. This podcasting is fun, isn't it, Josh? <laughs> it is. It's cool. Yeah, it is. You know, sometimes you're like, you put an episode out, you're like, I don't know if anybody's going to listen to this, but there it goes. And then all of a sudden you get some fun feedback or something and <laughs> you yep. do it again. <laughs> it's very true. All right. I have a couple more questions as we wrap up here. One of my favorite questions to ask, and I'm not getting rid of this one, is what is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this could be best day in the field. And for you, I mean, like like we talked about a lot, you spend a lot of time in the ocean. So it doesn't necessarily have to be at work or at school or whatever. Just one of your favorite ocean stories to tell. Or it could be a day that like everything went wrong and it's a really great story at the end. I feel like you kind of mm. already shared. I feel like you already shared that one a little bit. But. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know that one. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I think one of my favorite stories is there was a day of diving again along central California. There's an area called Big Sur. It's like my, it's like my, you know, my happy place. And uh, while a lot of times, yeah, the water's, you know, 15, 20 foot viz, it's cold. There are days when it's 60, you know, and mm -hmm. it's not blowing 20 knots at the surface and it's dead glass, you know, those perfect days where you're just like, wow, you know? And so I remember having a diving day on, it was like the last day of this trip. Uh, and there's a spot, a place called Esalon, which is this very famous, like kind of meditation retreat spot on Big Sur. Like you look at this, you're like, this is incredible. So anyway, it's beautiful. And we were diving off of there and it was just one of those like top to bottom days where it was just, you know, waking up and it was perfectly glassy and warm in the morning, you know, and it was like this great vibe on the boat. We had the great crew you know, a nice breakfast, we're pumping music, everybody's kind of mellow, the last day of the trip, and water's perfect, so everybody's just frothing to get in, because it's the last day, but, and it just looks insane, you know, and so I remember going down with, actually, my, who I mentioned, my buddy Dave Benet, who's, I dive with a bunch, and, you know, again, as you, you go down with your meter tape, 50 meter tape, you attach it to some kelp, and you string it out, and so where we drop down, but you got to imagine like 50 meters, you need 50 meters of length. Actually, it might be 25. Ah, it's been so long. Anyway, you need, you, need a, you need a runway. So if it's like a, like a pinnacle, it's not going to work. You know what I'm saying? You need like a longish reef. And I remember he clipped it. He's like, I think we're good. Kind of, you know, hand signs and everything. Uh, and right. he swam off while I was getting ready. I was basically waiting at the tape. He was going to swim and then come back. We're going to go together. So all of a sudden he's like swimming and he gets into the Merc. And I feel this tug on my back and I was like, whoa, of course you freak out. And it's him. And basically what happened, we had landed on a pinnacle. It didn't look like it. And he had basically swam in a circle, you know, and uh, <laughs> came back and we kind of laughed and we're like, screw it. We're just going to do this big circular survey. So we did this survey. It's beautiful. It's absolutely gorgeous. Um, and later in the season, you would come up and you, we'd have like the big high pressure tanks. So you had like an hour plus hour and 20 minutes of the dive time. Um, and you would then, you would do a kelp right under the kelps, right under the surface of the kelp, like two meters. 
because a lot of little juvenile rockfish will come sit up there and the kelp, it's all warm. It's really nice. So we would do another transect on top. So you come up, do your safety stop. And while you're doing your safety stop, you're kind of swapping out your data sheets, right? And I remember, and you know, with your mask, you have no like peripheral vision whatsoever, right? It's total, total like blinders on. And I was swapping my data sheet out and I still had my little dive light on my wrist, like my lanyard, you know, because I was the guy poking the cracks. And usually I put it away in one of my pockets, but I didn't. And it was, I just remember, and I, I was just changed my data sheet out. And all of a sudden I feel this tug and I thought it was you know, my buddy Dave. And I turn over and I, I don't see anybody. And what had <laughs> happened was this lingcod, which is this big toothy, like really delicious, you know, lion weight predator who hangs in the cracks, you know, that's, you know, I don't know, 40 inches or so came shooting out of the depths and tried to bite, tried to basically hit the dive light. Like it was a fish or something. Oh my gosh. So he gets the dive light and they have giant mouths. You can put like a a volleyball in these things. Mouths are huge. So he got the light and he got his little teeth hooked in my wetsuit. So he was like struggling to get his teeth out of my wetsuit. I'm flailing around, you know, there's a big commotion. (laughs) And all of a sudden he gets off and then swims back down, you know, you know, I can't tell the story because we're underwater. And I'm like gesturing. He's like looking at me like, dude, what is wrong with you? You know, <laughs> but anyway, it was just like classic tale, you know, of a great day. And then we came up and then uh, actually it's funny because why we And then I got attacked by a fish. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And so I'm always fishing when I'm on these trips. And so, you know, we're getting everything situated. I drop a rod down. I'm sitting there, you know, and I, I hook a big lingcod, bring it up. And I don't, I couldn't remember if it was the same color. We, we all called it. it was the same fish. So we let him, we let him go. But um, anyway, just kind of one of those fun days in the water that, uh, you know, kind of just you you, think, <laughs> you dream about those days, you know, and think back to them so fondly. That is pretty funny. So you're not even going <laughs> to wetsuit in 50 degree water? Uh, dry suit. Yeah. You are in a dry suit. Okay. Yeah, either I like a super dry suit. Like, and I was like that's, that's really cold. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The thermal protection is key. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. I, yes. I can't imagine diving not in a dry suit in that cold of water. If listeners want to find you, connect with you, where is the best place to do that? You know, the podcast is thisoceanlife.tv and that's the website. All the episodes are there. And then, uh, you know, all, all the links to Instagram stuff and, you know, Facebook, et cetera. So yeah, if anybody ever wanted to reach out and just chat, what have you, like, uh, yeah, just do that. You can it's a contact form on the website, uh, Instagram, you know, instant message and all that stuff. And uh, yeah, always looking for people to come on like you, Kara, who want to share about their own ocean lives. So for folks listening, hit me up. Love to have you. <laughs> awesome. Well, Josh, this has been a lot of fun chatting with you. Thank you for being on the show. Yeah, Kara, no, I appreciate it so much. And uh, I always get excited when I get to talk semi-science for for an hour. So thank you for letting me uh, (laughs) do that and share with everybody. Hey, one more thing. Do you want to dive more into the ocean and marine biology? Need a little guidance on ocean conservation? Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources. We've got book recommendations, job posting pages, conference suggestions, and ocean-friendly products. All recommendations have been personally vetted by me, and I will continue to add to the collection as I come across cool things to share. Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources to learn more. See you over there. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life.
If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight for me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.